Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. I'm Michael Krasny. Last month, Governor Gavin Newsom unveiled a $500 million grants program for nonprofits, small businesses, and cultural institutions in an attempt to alleviate COVID-19's impact on California's arts industry. Still, the pandemic's toll on the arts has been devastating as venues and theaters have closed, ticket revenue has vanished, and funding sources have become scarcer. But a number of organizations are finding new and creative ways to survive. We'll talk with the leaders of some Bay Area arts organizations about the pandemic's impacts and how they've adapted and what's ahead. That's next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Art makes the crudeness of reality bearable, to paraphrase George Bernard Shaw, and by those lights, we're all struggling mightily. The COVID-19 pandemic has taken a crushing blow to California's arts and cultural institutions, and the state has not yet issued guidelines as to when they can reopen. In this hour, we're going to hear how arts groups are coping nine months into the pandemic and the creative ways some local organizations are staying afloat and really bringing joy and beauty to their audiences Joining us is Julie Baker, Executive Director of Californians for the Arts, and welcome to the program. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for having me. Delighted to have you, and I ought to mention that that your organization has actually been mobilizing statewide as a task force of artists and venue operators, unions, uh, to uh, actually find safe guidelines for reopening, uh, especially outdoor events and so forth. Uh, The state has issued protocols, and we can get into this, and I hope we will, for reopening bars and restaurants and gyms, but not necessarily a parody when it comes to reopening uh, and establishing performance guidelines. But first, I'd like to just find out from you the effect and the impact of what the pandemic has brought. Uh, and, and I'm talking about something that uh, has been, in, in a word, I think you said is devastating. That's the only word that seems to come to mind. Yeah, I mean, I think that the economic impact is massive for our sector, as you can imagine. I mean, we 
primarily rely on the opportunity to gather in person and as part of what we do uh, to bring joy and to bring social cohesion and wellness to our communities. And so in March, when the first orders came down, we shut and we've been essentially shut since then for nine months. And I know you'll hear from some guests today about how they have been innovative and, and resilient. And there's many silver linings, I think, that we can find and hope that we can find out of this. But in terms of the economic impact, uh, the Brookings Institute, for example, did a study and it it shows that about a third of California's creative jobs have been lost uh, directly to COVID-19. That's a $45 billion in accumulative economic loss. And, and even from the California Department of Labor through August, it reports that arts, entertainment, and recreation has seen the largest percentage of job loss. That's over 40% in the state. And that's beyond the second largest sector percentage of job loss, which is leisure and hospitality. So, you know, we're just, we're doing what we can to, to stay in the game and to stay stay alive as, as a sector. And um, I think that, you know, we're very reliant upon foundations and private funders at this point to really support us through. But we've also had, and in particular in the Bay Area, you've had an amazing amount of support. I mean, uh, London Bree, the mayor of San Francisco, in, in March announced two and a half million dollars for artists and arts organizations. And you've got universal basic income for artists program in San Francisco. So, so there's a lot of um, amazing programs happening at the federal level, which is interesting, too, is that with the PPP loans, uh, $13.7 billion went to the arts and creative businesses uh, throughout the United States. 1.8 billion of that went to nonprofit arts. That's larger than a decade's worth of NEA funding. So we've had some aspects and, and access to um, ways to keep us um, in, in business, but time is running out, particularly at the federal level as your reporting just um, was talking about, and we're hoping we'll see something coming down real soon. Well, also, since you mentioned the Brookings uh, Institute's uh, statistics, they came up with all sectors losing over 450,000 jobs. Uh, and, you know, arts, let's face it, uh, provide a great outlet, particularly at a time like this, uh, for mental health benefits uh, that can't even be measured and healing. Uh, I saw a quote of Toni Morrison's where she was talking about really how the necessity at times like this to really prevail uh, is provided to a great degree by artists and what artists bring to the table. We'll talk some more uh, again with our guests and get the general picture from her, Julie Baker, who's Executive Director of California for the Arts. But as I throughout this hour, we're going to bring in some voices of people who are involved specifically with different arts. And uh, Corey Dastour is joining us first. Corey Dastour is General Director of Opera San Jose, and I should mention that she is I believe the only woman of color running a major opera company in the whole of the United States. And Corey, welcome to the program. Good morning, Michael. Good morning to you. I keep thinking about all those Italians on their balconies singing arias during this <laughs> pandemic. Uh, we need opera, <laughs> clearly. Uh, and uh, you're in kind of a unique situation in some ways because um, you're in that mid category. Uh, you're not big enough, uh, like some of the arts organizations, to be able to hibernate and return but you're too small to rely on a large board. So uh, exactly right. And that's and, in some and, ways, that's the toughest position to be in for, for many, isn't it? Well, you know, I think what you've said is exactly what's right. Um, 
the need has never been greater. And certainly the behavior of this virus makes what we do, which is swapping aerosols in a, in a small you know, space to a largely elderly patron base, pretty impossible. So what do you do when confronted with a challenge like that? I would only say that um, it is art that's pulling everybody through this. People are you know, falling back in love with the poetry and the music uh, that has so much meaning. And we have no choice but to support our artists and support this very fragile ecosystem in the Bay Area. We do not have some of the same social services in San Jose that exist in San Francisco. So my artists are leaving. They are switching careers. Um, and our patrons are on continual lockdown. So we have to, we have to, have to meet the need. There's no choice. And you're doing it in ways that are really quite innovative and imaginative. I mean, as best you can. And in, in terms of fundraising, I was reading where uh, for a $5,000 donation, you can have someone come to your driveway and do an aria. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's pretty imaginative. Right. But also, I want to talk about the unique approach you're doing in creating actually a digital lab and, and quarantining artists and creating new content. What I hope your listeners appreciate is what our artists are willing to sacrifice to bring them new programming. Uh, Opera Santo Day's Opera San Jose doesn't enjoy a vast library of archival productions, um, and we don't have an endowment. So our lifeblood is new work, incubating tomorrow's artists. These artists do not make NBA salaries, but they were willing to sacrifice seeing their families, seeing their friends, uh, joining together in a household in complete isolation, having their groceries delivered, uh, any number of sacrifices that are staggering so that we could produce a production during these times, a production that feels relevant um, to exactly what's going on in this moment. And um, I'm very, very proud of them for pulling that together. And you're doing things, uh, well, under the circumstances, which really uh, I wanted to highlight. You got into movie making. Uh, I remember, in fact, uh, years ago, uh, I did a, uh, was participant in a film with Lefty Mansour, who was then head of San Francisco Opera. Exactly. And it's, it's a really good and solid way of fundraising, but you're also doing a lot of multilingual things, uh, reaching, for example, beyond into the Vietnamese community. That's right. So many of our non-English speaking community members haven't felt comfortable in our opera houses for four decades. And now we have an opportunity to offer our programming in Vietnamese, in Spanish and remove those barriers. Uh, and that's what's surprising about this pandemic. Julie mentioned the silver linings. They're actually all over the place. The costs can come down. The, uh, the, the amount of work we can produce can go up. Uh, we can produce shorter programming. We can produce newer work. We don't have to rely on the same formula that's taken us this far. And I see a tremendous, tremendous creative renaissance coming on the heels of this. And, you know, to be frank, everyone's missing live performance, perhaps in a way that they weren't aware of before. And perhaps they will stand with the arts in the months ahead as we seek recovery. Corey Doster with us, General Director of Opera San Jose. And uh, the future, we hope, will hold more for opera. You have to do it without masks, uh, which is certainly uh, a challenge in many ways, but you're going to have shorter productions probably and fewer people in, in the future. And yet, uh, I think it's really vital to get some protocols here um, for your group and for so many groups that we're going to hear from over the course of this hour. Corey, thank you for joining us. Good to have you thank with Thank you, us. Michael. Thank you for the topic and congratulations on the retirement. Thank you for that. And let me go back to uh, Julie Baker. Julie Baker, again, is Executive Director of California for the Arts. Uh, as they say, in the course of this hour, we'll be talking to some other leaders from the arts community. Uh, but arts, culture, and entertainment uh, is an industry in California uh, which really still has, a, as you said earlier with the Brookings numbers, 
a third of its participants, a third of its employees out of work. I'm wondering, Julie, if we could sort of look at what's being done broadly in terms of the pandemic, uh, creating on social media, for example, and what's being done vis-a-vis this crisis, because there's so much that's being done and offered online to people who are working at home with their children, for example, and the like. Uh, I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable. It is, Michael. I mean, I think that, you know, on, it's obvious that artists are incredibly creative people and innovators. And, and when the pandemic hit and we had to change every way in which we do business and we're used to doing business. And as Corey said, I think one of the silver linings is that the industry is learning some yeah, some new tools, getting some new tools in our toolbox. And many people are actually reaching wider and larger audiences because of um, going online. The challenge, however, to online is the monetary um, aspect of it. How do we earn revenue? In the United States, you know, the source for revenue for nonprofit arts organizations is about 60% earned income. 31% is contributed from individual donors, foundations, and corporations, and the remaining uh, 29 comes, uh, I'm sorry, that's not, that's not the right math. The remaining 9% comes from uh, public funding. So we have, um, you know, lost a lot of opportunity in terms of revenue. But I think what Corey was saying is, is really important, which, you know, we've been talking about the value of artists and these cultural and arts organizations as these uh, trusted community partners as second responders in a crisis. And we've really seen this come to really uh, an incredible light during the pandemic of where are people looking for a sense of joy, a sense of hope, a sense of meaning during this time. And the arts are providing that for us. The trick is to make sure that we also value it in terms of investment and funding. And, um, you know, I think we can all say that we know that we are systemically undercapitalized as an industry. I mean, we are a massive industry to California. We are actually 8.2% of the state's gross domestic product, a larger share of the state's economy than construction or transportation. Julie, excuse me, you're the economic engine in many ways. You're one of the major economic engines. I'm coming up on a break and I want to give out the phone number because I know there are many people who have questions and comments. And again, we're really talking about the status of the arts in the pandemic. You can call us now and we welcome your calls. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Again, that's toll free, 866-733. 36786. Please feel free to be part of the program. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about the arts, uh, particularly how they are surviving and how they are managing. And it's certainly been a struggle and a great number of problems have accrued, as you can imagine, but also a lot of innovation and a lot of uh, creativity. And if you are working in the arts or if you are 
a lover of the arts, uh, as so many of our listeners are, you may want to weigh in here and bring your own perspective or come in with any questions you might have. Uh, you can join us at our toll-free number. I invite you to be part of the program. The number to call is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you may have to forum at kqed.org. Julie Baker with us, Executive Director of California for the Arts. Uh, we spoke earlier with Corey Dastur, who is General Director of Opera San Jose. I want to bring Dina Beard into the discussion. She directs the Lab. It's a San Francisco-based organization that provides funding and space for traditionally underrepresented artists. And Dina Beard, welcome. Glad to have you. Thank you, Michael. I should mention that the Lab is uh, founded back in 2008 by San Francisco State students. Uh, in what I understand to be a response to the homogenization of art. So there was a bit of, um, shall we say, rebellion in that perhaps, or um, at least response to uh, not wanting to be homogenized. But let's talk about what you do. Uh, I mean, this is a space that's built pretty much for incubating um, the arts, especially underrepresented artists. Yeah, indeed. We we definitely choose artists who are kind of crossing disciplinary boundaries. And we give those artists about almost $100,000 each, um, usually about three three artists per year between twenty-five dollars and $100,000 each, and totally unrestricted access to our space and institutional model. So they can actually change everything about the institution while they're in residence at the lab. Well, you were in pretty decent shape financially. I mean, actually pretty thriving, and uh, that's enabled you to continue to uh, move forward, at least in these hard times, but uh, giving you a cushion, I guess, is the best way to, to put it. But uh, nevertheless, the pandemic um, really created problems. I mean, you were trying to purchase a building for the program, and now you can't do that, or you have to put it on delay? Yes, absolutely. Um, the whole situation with the building buy was essential to kind of the sustainability of the arts ecosystem in the Bay Area. As everyone knows, we've lost about 50% of our art spaces over the past 10 years just because of rising rents. So we decided to get together the, all, the, all the residents of the building who are artists and nonprofits and activists, and we decided to try to co-purchase our building together. Unfortunately, the sale fell through at the last minute, um, but it means we we have a little bit more time in our space, and we're really trying to th think of different ways to kind of maintain that um, through in the future. Talking with Dina Beard, director of the Lab, a San Francisco-based organization that provides funding and space to traditionally underrepresented artists, and you created the forum. This was actually inspired by a guest on forum. She's been on a few times, a historian. Jill Lepore, and uh, well, we're Forum. Your creation is the Forum. Uh, let's. Uh, this this is the annuity that's paid, right? Exactly. Um, well, we uh, we definitely we we were inspired by Jill's article in February, and we really thought of you know we have to do everything online now, so might as well bring, cross germinate all these perspectives globally. So bringing on artists as, as well as activists, poets, and critical thinkers to really have discussions about where we're at right now. And what's come out of those discussions? Can you give us a little uh, sort of short, brief <laughs> notion of what came out particularly? Well, we've had, I mean, we had MacArthur Genius awardee Fred Moten speaking about um, autonomy and, think, and different kinds of mutual aid in the future. We had debt activist Astra Taylor speaking about how Debt resistance might be a key plan for reconfiguring how our society works. Um, artist Wu Sang presenting different different models of working online. 
it's been really exciting. I mean, as, as I'm sure you know, these types of forums are some of the most interesting conversations we can have in this moment. And uh, I hope they will continue. And I'm glad you could join us this morning. Thank you for doing, Thank for being you, with us. Again, that's um, Dina Beard, director of the lab, which is a San Francisco-based organization that provides funding and space to traditionally underrepresented artists. And let me go back, if I may, to you, Julie Baker. And Julie Baker, again, is executive director of Californians for the Arts. And we'll get some callers on here but uh, and, and people who are emailing us. Uh, but I just want to find out if you me, Julie, uh, a bigger picture here in terms of trying to get protocols, trying to get guidelines, because it's been a struggle. It has, Michael. I mean, we, as, as we mentioned before, you know, is when March occurred and, uh, and the pandemic hit, we were all shut down, as was everyone in the beginning. And then as they realized that this was not going to stop in June and this was going to be a longer cycle than we all anticipated, and, and uh, they started to release protocols from the governor's office on how to reopen restaurants, how to reopen bars, how to reopen bowling alleys. But we didn't see the arts in there. They were um, offering museums. Uh, and then in July, uh, the governor announced music, TV, and film production, primarily coming out of Los Angeles, was allowed and actually even called that essential work, which was something we were really excited to see. But the rest of the live performing arts industries have been left out of that equation. And so we do have a 50-person task force across the um, state of California working directly with the governor's office, trying to get these protocols released. We don't want to open when it's not safe to do so. And clearly it is not safe to do so right now. As I say, we're in deep purple. Um, but when the, we do get to a place where the vaccinations are being distributed and we can get back into tiers like yellow and orange and beyond that, we need time to plan to reopen uh, our performing arts centers. In addition, many of our centers have state-of-the-art ventilation systems. We have incredible safety protocols that we've already established pre-pandemic and now post uh, during the pandemic, we have those developed. And really, we are an industry that are professional at events and logistics and people moving. And I'll be honest with you, uh, I live in a smaller community where when we were in, you know, orange tier, the bars were open, um, but performing arts centers were not. And I, I do have to ask the question, <laughs> when will we prioritize arts over alcohol? And yeah, I think, I think that's been kind of an anthem almost of many of you in the arts community. Also, we hear first to close and last to reopen. That's what you're fighting as well. Let me read some emails that are coming in. This is uh, from the San Francisco Shakespeare Festival, a tweet San Francisco Shakespeare Festival sees artists as second responders. We moved free Shakespeare in the park to a virtual stage this summer and learned so much. Another tweet from Noel who says, I'm impressed with The Marsh, a solo performance venue, and their pivot to online with Marstream. They have hosted game nights, interviews with performers, solo performances, and even group exercise. And another listener emails, my son is a theater major at the School of the Arts here in San Francisco, and he's really sad about his not being able to perform the way he would normally be performing during school. Any suggestions for him or other high schoolers who are experiencing this, Julie? I mean, I think that there's, you know, the opportunity right now, as you see, you know, Corey was talking about with San Jose Opera, where they're doing things outside of people's homes you know, with, you know, 25 at least foot distance where you can perform outdoors in the streets. We've seen drive-in uh, theater um, live performances. Uh, we just had some in San Diego with San Diego Opera. No um, um, 
distribution of COVID from those that have been um, traced back to it. So I think there are ways that we can do live performances. I think for students right now, I think, you know, being able to use the online medium, you see a lot of great original content even coming out of TikTok. Uh, so I think that there's, you know, we're just going to have to continue to be innovative and creative in our ways that we can deliver the content. But we know that there is a tremendous challenge uh, for our sector as well as for our students who um, this is the outlet they so desperately need to get through this as they're going through isolation. So finding each other, I think, online and performing, uh, we've seen some great choir and choral performances, et cetera, um, it might be an opportunity that they could, should look at at this point. And we should also mention that a lot of arts organizations have become de facto crisis management centers uh, with food Absolutely. and ba basic supplies. I mean, they play a role in the community, which is an, uh, ex extremely important. Let me bring a caller on here. Marty joins us as our first caller. Marty, welcome. Thank you. Whoops. Am I correct on the phone? <laughs> you, are, you are on, and I believe you're a performer. Is that right? That's right. Um, I have a business called Unexpected Company, and we do special events entertainment for families, for corporations, company events, festivals. And since the pandemic, of course, special events got the axe. So it's been incredibly difficult for mm, my colleagues and myself to, to find ways to connect with people. There are a few who have gone to online offerings, but as um, your guest mentioned, it's difficult to monetize that. And it's just the joy of spreading joy is at least as important as the money amount. And uh, usually the holidays are the busiest time of the year to be spreading joy and all of us are completely sidelined, sitting at home, not doing that. That's so sad. I just wanted to and, weigh in. Yeah, and I'm glad you did. Thank you, Marty, for that call. Good to hear from you. Let's hear from another caller. We'll go to Marie next. Marie, join us. You're on the air. Hi, Michael. This is Maria Costa. I'm in Sacramento with the Sacramento Artist Corps that was formed when the city allocated $20 million to support the arts through this pandemic. And we're putting work... We're giving work to over 40 artists who are creating messaging about COVID-19 to our community, specifically the Latino and African-American community that have been the hardest hit here in Sacramento. And these artists have created remarkable murals, posters, songs, uh, uh, spoken word, coloring books that are going to be distributed free this weekend at food banks. And I just want to say Mayor Steinberg did a great job. And anyone who's not a member of Californians for the Arts, become a member. Thank you, Julie. Okay. Thank you, Marie. Good to hear from you. And uh, Full, dis full uh, disclosure, Michael, she's on our board. But that uh, program, Sacramento Artist Corps, is amazing. It's a WPA for the 21st century that we can be modeling all over the state. Yeah, we need a WPA. Uh, bring back the WPA. Uh, I'm going to bring on another uh, art director, and that's Margot Hall, who's our artistic director of the Lorraine Hansberry Theater in San Francisco. And I should mention that uh, she was appointed artistic director back in September and has a lot of roots, uh, not only in Motown, she's from Detroit, but also theater roots that are deep roots. Uh, Campo Santo, for example, and she was uh, an actor in Fences uh, for the Shakespeare Theater. Um, and a little footnote here for those of you who 
know the great August Wilson play or movie that was made starring Denzel Washington. There's a big controversy going on as we speak right now in North Carolina, but uh, welcome, Margot Hall. Good to have you with us. Good morning. Oh, so happy to be here. So happy to be here. Well, happy to have you. And let's talk about what you're talking about, which is rebranding the whole notion of the Lorraine's Hansberry Theater. Many people know Lorraine Hansberry largely from Raisin in the Sun, but also to be young, gifted, and black. And how does this uh, compute, particularly in pandemic times? Yes. Well, becoming the first female artistic director of the Lorraine Hansberry Theater, uh, one of my missions and one of my goals is to really work under the guise of her legacy. And what we've done during this time uh, of the pandemic is kind of just taking a step back and regroup and trying to figure out what type of work do we want to produce. Uh, we've kind of done some deep thinking and we started a strategic plan and we're shoring up our board and uh, just taking a moment as opposed to jumping into producing, um, we've decided that we want to be ready, ready in a way that's a spiritual way, ready in a way where we have really thought through what our focus is. And one of the main things I'm interested in using this opportunity to think of an initiative, and I'm really interested in supporting Black female and femme identified artists. So I started an initiative to support three artists over a three-year period and pair them up with a mentor of an established Black female playwright. And this is something that we can start during the pandemic. It can be over Zoom. It's not a production, but it is an opportunity to dive into our mission, which is to create an incubator with the Lorraine Hansberry Theater. And again, honoring the great Lorraine Hansberry in a way where we are producing new work by new black fem female and femme identified artists. So that's what we've been up to. That certainly sounds uh, invigorating and important, uh, particularly in light of uh, the legacy that we identify with Lorraine Hansberry. Those who aren't familiar with her work uh, sadly died at, at age 35, but uh, I believe Raisin in the Sun, which comes, of course, from a poem by Langston Hughes, was uh, featured the first black director on Broadway, Lloyd Richards. And um, what maybe people don't know about Lorraine Hansberry, perhaps, is that she actually worked with Paul Robson and W.B. Du Bois, no less, uh, on the newspaper Freedom. Uh, there's quite a history there that you have in that name. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, and th there's an incredible book, Looking for Lorraine by Mon Perry, that I've been reading religiously <laughs> uh, and really diving deep into her life. And I think there's so much more to uncover her activism, um, her just radicalism. And I think at this time, it's such an important piece of work. And it's so inspiring to me. So when I'm focusing on where are we going forward with the Lorraine Hansberry Theater, again, we're, we're, we're thinking forward. You know, we're taking a step back. We're slowing down, but it doesn't mean that we're not moving forward. Uh, we will have a surprise coming up in February of a co-production with another theater uh, that will be work that will be filmed. 
So that is coming up. Uh, but right now, we're just deep thinking. You know, we're trying to figure out what do we need right now? What does the world need and what can we offer? Um, and what can we offer our young female and femme-identified artists? Well, I wish you good luck on all of those scores, and we'll find out, I hope, what that surprise is when you're willing to unveil it or let us know what <laughs> it is. Uh, I also want to mention uh, a former student of mine, Burial Clay, whose work I'm sure you're familiar with. I know that you're dedicated to not only um, uh, female-identified voices, uh, getting women playwrights uh, mentored and the like, but also finding new black voices. And Burial was one of those uh, new black voices way back when, who uh, I was fortunate enough to have uh, known quite closely as a professor and as a friend. Um, and there's now, in fact, the theater named after him. I was also, That's uh, right. yeah. Um, thank you so much for joining us. It's good to have you, Margo, and good luck to you. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to talk to you. That's Margot Hall, our district director of the Lorraine Hansberry Theater in San Francisco. Let me read some comments coming in. Harvey writes, the phenomenon of musical performances going online via YouTube and Facebook is a double-edged sword. Now anything we do is available anywhere. There's Internet access. But at the same time, each musical event has to compete for attention with hundreds of events as opposed to pre-pandemic when it was just a handful in one's local area. Uh, publicity becomes many times more crucial to any success. And here's Allison, who weighs in with many of the supportive roles, including customers and stage manager, managers are also impacted. A friend works in costuming for Bay Area theater companies, and she is one of many who are out of work. People working in the arts already didn't have steady income before the pandemic, and now are suffering from even greater financial hardship. These creative people need the arts as much as patrons miss the products of their work. And Erica says, point of correction, the lab was founded in 1984, not 2008. I'll take that point of correction. Um, I think something maybe uh, of the forum had to do with 2008, but uh, we'll look it up and we'll get it straight and we'll take more of your calls. Please feel free to be part of the program. You can call us now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email us, forum at kqed.org. This is KQED. I'm Michael Krasny. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about the arts here in the Bay Area and how they're surviving in this pandemic, or in some cases, alas, not surviving, but also how they're innovating and how they're struggling. And uh, Julia, Julie Baker's with us, Executive Director of California for the Arts, and uh, I want to bring on more callers. Let me get Gwen on next. Gwen, thank you for waiting. Join us. Hi, um, Mike. I was a Michael. I was a former student of yours a long time ago. But anyway, I want to give a shout out to Intersection for the Arts. They act as an inter 
incubator for artists. And when I had a newspaper years ago, I didn't have a C-503 or whatever that non-prof status was. So they would take the grant for a certain percentage in their name. So they help out artists a lot. They're now on Market Street. They used to be on Valencia. Also, the uh, Exit Theater has a French festival, which you have to pay $300 if you're accepted to. Um, but I decided to roll mine over. I got accepted this year, but I'm going to roll it over to next September when hopefully the uh, pandemic is over. And one last quick question. Now that I'm older and not a struggling artist, I'm working out a foundation to give my elementary school $10,000 per year so that they can have an art teacher and get elementary kids in the arts. That's yeah, let's talk about that with, uh, and thank you, Gwen, for the call with you, Julie Baker. I mean, in terms of continuing to promote the arts, especially in these difficult times with children. Uh, you mean getting access to arts for children is, yeah. is, is critical. I mean, we know the data shows what that brings for children in terms of, I mean, everything from, again, creating empathy and understanding to graduation rates and better uh, test scores. Um, we need the arts in our schools and actually we're supposed to have the arts in our schools. It's part of the ed code. So if it's not being delivered in your schools, you should be at your school board meetings uh, asking for this and demanding it. Um, actually, I just got elected to my school board here and I definitely as an arts advocate this is something that I'm is near and dear to my heart so I think that it's something that you know we we need to demand better um, it shouldn't be in my opinion an elective it should be part of the core curriculum there's a lot to be said for that uh, I mean it's funny what's coming to mind uh, what uh, involuntary memory Proust would call it is uh, an interview I did many years ago with Edward Albee the famous playwright uh, and he was saying that Arts are just as important for children and learning as anything, including, you know, math, arithmetic, uh, reading, writing, and so forth. And that kind of vital necessity for the arts is really what we're talking about here. Kids do better, too, academically, generally, when they have more exposure and access to the arts. That's pretty much and been demonstrated exactly. time and again. Yeah. And employers look for these types of, uh, you know, people who have this level of creativity in them today more so than ever. That's what that's what they want. That's what they want in an employee. So we definitely need to make sure that this is being taught and offered for all students, not just ones where the schools can um, have, you know, a, a, it needs to be in every school. And let me bring another caller on here. Edmund joins us. Edmund, thanks for waiting. You're on the air. Welcome. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so I just wanted to make a brief comment. I'm, my name's Edmund, but I'm better known under my drag name, which is Franzia Kafka. I'm a drag performer and producer in San Francisco. And I just wanted to talk briefly about the state of drag performance, which is a really quintessential art form to San Francisco in the Bay Area. Um, you know, drag performance is historically a, kind of a cabaret art form intrinsically tied to nightlife. And with the shuttering of bars, um, drag performers have all had to pivot and go online. So one of your other uh, comments made a note about a double-edged sword. It's really been that for us, um, you know, on one hand, it's really opened up um, an audience we never had access to since we mostly perform in bars. But on the other hand, um, our, the little money that we had coming into our art form has completely vanished. So this is also tied up in, you know, the, stu 
Um, San Francisco is a historic gay bar, the oldest gay bar in the city. They've had, they lost their venue this year, but they are still producing shows online. So I'd encourage anyone who likes drag, who wants to support the LGBT community, to check out um, some of the shows that are tied to venues in the city, such as Oasis FS and The Stud. Can I ask you a quick question, Edmund? Of, of course. Uh, Franz Kafka happens to be one of my favorite writers of all time. Why did you mm-hmm. adopt that identity of Franzia Kafka? I'm just <laughs> curious. Um, He's one of my favorite. Um, I have a degree in Russian literature, and he was one of my favorite authors as well. And I, um, <laughs> in drag, it's customary to have sort of a pun of a drag name. Ah. And so I did drink a lot of wine in college, so I decided to go with the name Franzia Kafka. <laughs> you don't try to look like Kafka, though, or necessarily dress like uh, Kafka, anything like that. No, but I have dressed like a bug before. <laughs> well, good luck to you, and thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's good to of hear course. from you. Thank you for having me. Here's Andrew who tweets, uh, let me go to you on this, Julie Baker, get your response to Andrew's tweet. He says, musicians are working hard, but with no outlet or support, the financial security and mental health of our artists is in need of dire help. I think that's probably something that goes without saying, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we actually just are completing a survey and one of the top responses in terms of needs, I mean, of course, there's always need for funding and everything else, but 28% of the individuals who responded to our survey said they need mental health support. These are individual creative workers throughout the state of California. So, you know, I think that we offer mental health support as artists um, in, in our communities as our second responders and through the delivery of everything we've done during the pandemic to bring people joy through into their homes but we also recognize how critically important it is for our own artists to be taken care of um, right now and you know 63 percent and i think this number is low of artists and creative workers um, nationally are unemployed i mean you know they're typically self-employed three and a half times more than the usual any other occupation artists are self-employed so they're not really being captured in those numbers so I think that, you know, it's great to hear organizations that are able to pause and to do the sort of reimagining of their business models and as well as their content. But we also have to recognize that artists and cultural workers are being furloughed and um, positions being terminated on a daily basis right now. And so there needs to be, as San Francisco is starting to adopt, as the Yerba Buena Center is doing in, in many of their innovative programs, and what the state needs to be doing in looking at this vital workforce and making sure that we are providing systems to support them. And once again, Julie Baker is executive director of California for the Arts. I'm sorry, Julie, you were adding something there for a moment? I was just saying, which includes access to health care. Yeah, absolutely. Let me read some more emails that are coming in. Jimmy writes, we produced a grassroots online festival fundraiser called Revive the Night San Francisco. We just raised $40,000 last week through merchandise, raffles, and direct donations just to drop in the bucket, but all funds went to independent dance music venues and their staff. They were ready, uh, already struggling before the pandemic and need the local community support if we want to preserve creative culture in the city. And here's Edith from Port Richmond who writes, when the pandemic began, our local arts group, Arts of Point Richmond, printed local artists' work on heavy banners and posted them all over downtown as a semi-permanent outdoor art show. Our local theater, Masker's Playhouse, finished up a massive multi-year renovation project only to have their first season in five years canceled due to COVID. 
They cried a little and then put on their game faces and performed two new live works via Zoom. Artists have had to dig deep and find their gumption, their inner Scarlett O'Hara, brush themselves off and make ball gowns out of window curtains, and we as patrons of the arts are all very thankful for it. That inner Scarlett O'Hara makes me think of, you know, tomorrow is another day. If you know you're gone with the wind, let me bring another caller here. Susan, join us. You're on the air. Hi, my name is Susan Taylor, and I play bass, double bass, with the Peninsula Symphony Orchestra. And let me tell you, it's been hard on us as well, and we're hoping we can reopen next summer uh, with an outdoor concert. But one thing we've done is we learned how to click track, and we've done lots of, on our website, PeninsulaSymphony.com, we've had uh, lots of guest artists we've had in the past, like John Nakamatsu and Tessa Clark. And um, we've got concerts coming up on the 22nd, and lots of our players have formed uh, small ensembles and uh, so far, you know, we're getting tiny donations here and there, and we're staying alive. So, you know, we're a nonprofit too, and um, so that's my contribution. Yeah, thank but you it, for that. It, it's and been hard. I, it's been hard, I'm sure, and and certainly commiserate, and hope that you do indeed stay alive. And thank you for letting us know what's going on in your world. I appreciate hearing from you and. Uh, in the time remaining, if you'd like to join us by email, it's forum at kqed.org or on Twitter. Uh, you can get in touch with us at kqed.forum, uh, at kqed forum, excuse me. Um, I wanted to um, actually go back to Julie Baker for just a moment and uh, talk about uh, Julie Baker again as executive director for California for the Arts. Uh, where are the possibilities of more revenues going to come from? I, you'd mentioned earlier, and we talked about a $500 million grant program for small businesses, nonprofits, and cultural institutions. Uh, and back in July, I believe it was, that uh, Governor Newsom talked about music and TV and film production being essential. So we've got a couple of things here that I think people really need to frame. One is making the arts into and, and artist workers into essential workers but also getting more funding and if possible, getting more funding from the feds. That's right. I mean, we're all waiting any moment now to see what comes out of DC. There is a $900 billion stimulus package being um, debated and included in that is are some things very specifically for the arts and live entertainment, including a, a, an act called Save Our Stages uh, and um, p pandemic unemployment assistance, which goes to people who are self-employed, like 1099 workers. As you, um, as I noted earlier in the program, PPP um, has been, you know, utilized by our sector dramatically. Uh, 1.8 billion for nonprofit arts and culture. So, you know, hopefully these things will come to fruition quickly before the end of the year, uh, because time is running out, particularly for those who are self-employed with unemployment assistance. Um, so we're hoping to see something coming from the feds and Save Our Stages has been uh, and something that came together where live entertainment venues have been shuttered. Many of them are independent mom and pop venues that um, rely 100% on earned revenue to be, to be able to, oh my dogs, I'm sorry. So, you know, it's, it's important to see those things coming through. We were we were really pleased to see the governor mention in this $500 million cultural institutions. It was the first 
last time we've been called out since the pandemic, and that is critical for us to be seen and heard. I think it is really important that we start to develop the both the narrative and um, and and the programs and the policy to support artists as essential workers. Um, it is something that has not really been um, put into play. And I think you know we are they are skilled workers with with things that are vital to our communities, as we know, not just economically and all the the sort of downstream impact of that, but also to our health and to our wellness. And you know, there's such a critical role for us to be playing right now. And we're seeing it. We just need to actually be, um, you know, invested in in that way. So we're also hoping that the state will continue to increase investment for the state arts agency, which is the California Arts Council. You know, there are many communities, particularly rural and BIPOC communities that do not have access to private funders and foundations and rely on the public support. So we need to continue that and increase it particularly now. And hopefully in the relief funds at some point also there'll be more funds to the states as we did see with CARES Act funding. And that can be distributed as Sacramento did, for example, with 20 out of $89 million went to arts, culture, and, and I think your dog was heralding the fact that this is necessary and vital, uh, certainly trying to echo the <laughs> yeah, importance of this and that barking that we heard. Let me, uh, yeah, <laughs> let me bring uh, Pat McKinney into this discussion. Pam McKinnon is artistic director of ACT, the American Conservatory Theater, and last time she was on forum, she had taken over for Carrie Perloff, who was traveling, I know, in fin or has been in Finland. I've been keeping up with her, uh, talking about seascape. Maybe that's why I mentioned Albie earlier on this uh, program. Pam, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, happy to have you. Uh, how, how are you holding up? Tell us. Oh, it's it's hard, right? I mean, you know, we're we're uh, an art form that is all about gathering people in place, and right now we've only been able to gather gather people virtually in time. Um, we've done a lot of pivoting. I mean, that that that's become that's become the word of the season. Um, you know, ACT as a, a professional actor training program, um, and um, in order to fulfill the pedagogy of our students, we've actually done a lot of virtual programming. Um, so, you know, we're on this steep, steep learning curve, um, but it's, it's hard. You know, this is, this is an art form that I certainly have dedicated my adult life to and did not think this was going to happen. Well, in fact, uh, in the spirit of the season, uh, ACT is doing Christmas Carol, but it's all audio, right? That's right. That's right. And it's 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 a it's a beautiful piece of work. Peter J. Quo, who is the new director of the conservatory and sort of our Scrooge expert, um, he uh, uh, directed. Um, this was Carrie Perloff's and Paul Walsh's adaptation of A Christmas Carol last year on the Geary stage. Peter directed it, and this year he's directing a radio version, and it's with fourteen actors. And of course, it was all done on Zoom. When we set it up, we were hopeful we could build some kind of of audio studio and have people together at least for some of the scenes but they were you know all across the country but you'll hear choral singing you know we have Jake Rodriguez we have Dan Freyer um, as our music and sound designers and we have 
beautiful Christmas carols sung, but know that people are in Wisconsin, Hawaii, Connecticut, the Bay. Um, and, you know, with Zoom, um, if you've ever been in a meeting where people try to cross talk, it cancels, you know, audio out. Um, and, you know, so with singing, it all became about single feed and then layering it in. Um, but it's, it's beautiful storytelling and we've adapted it for the medium. We're just adapting and adapting and adapting what we do. And I would submit that ACT is probably the only theatrical repertory group in the country, maybe in the world, that has its own Scrooge expert. Uh, that's really impressive. Um, also wondering about um, the ongoing classes, theater classes for kids and adults. It's all online, right? That's right. That's right. And, you know, we've, we've, we've also learned a lot that, that um, like, these, these classes, people, people are, are, are buying them, they're taking them, they're working. Our teacher, our teaching artists have also figured out how to use this Zoom format, um, especially our classes for middle school kids have just been like at capacity, which is really exciting. And um, we're just, you know, learning how to be creative with, with the tools, the tools as given. Um, we've also sort of learned our, our studio ACT classes. So these are for adults who aren't necessarily professional actors, but want to take an acting class or a clown class or a playwriting class um, that we, um, by offering classes that have, that run through a shorter span of calendar, people are signing up more. So instead of having like a 12 week commitment and 12 classes spread over, you know, as many, as many weeks, it's these six week classes that people are like, yup, that's what I want right now. Well, um, good luck you to know, you, Pam. And thank you. I'm so glad you could join us this morning. Pam McKinnon, again, is the artistic director of ACT, American Conservatory Theater. And a number of people would like to be promoted uh, as a result of this program. Let me just read these quickly. The Rock Poster Society started creating online content, including TRPS Mystery Tube, Episode 5 with artist Brad Clausen, uh, Todd Slater, and Ken Taylor broadcast live tonight at 5 p.m. Nick tweets, Hate Street Art currently has a couple exhibits available to view. Trans Resilience is Powerful and Stanley Mouse, a retrospective. Kathleen tweets, I started a small pop-up gallery called Art Standing, where we exhibit in open-air spaces. We have two exhibits at Gunlock Bunchu in the, their vineyard, and they were amazing, and we are looking forward to more opportunities in 2021. And we hope for the best for the arts community in 2021, and we hope those protocols and guidelines will come through. And thank you so much for being with us this hour, Julie Baker. Good to have you. Michael, thank you so much for the time here. And I just want to say to everyone who's listening, if the arts matter to you, continue to fight for it. Raise your voice right now. Donate where you can. And, uh, you know, check us out, CaliforniansforTheArts.org. Thank you. Thank you, Julie Baker. Thank you, our listeners. And please stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.